Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team great conversation with mr kendricks and this is the fly the w670 podcast it's season two it's episode 11 we want you to listen download review and most importantly subscribe to the fly the w podcast in this segment we continue with bob kendrick as he explains the rough transition that ernie banks went through as he joined the cubs and how he reunites with buck o'neill once again when buck becomes mlb's first black coach Now, one of the stories that I absolutely love, and there's pictures you can see this, but Ernie's in Chicago. He's at a hotel, and Buck tells him, hey, meet meet, meet me in the lobby. Drives him around and pulls up, you know, for the first time. Doesn't tell him where they're going. Pulls up right to the marquee that's still there at 1060 West Addison. And, And Buck is there when Ernie signs his contract with the Cubs. I mean, that had to have been just such an amazing moment. And at this time, Buck is not a member of the Cubs organization. No. But he, he gets he gets Ernie to sign. Yeah, no, he wasn't officially. Although they already had a handshake deal in place that Buck was going to come join the Cubs as a coach as soon as his tenure was over with the Monarchs. And after the 55 season, Buck went on over to the Cubs. But one of his first assignments was to bring Cubs, the Cubs Ernie Banks. And that's what he did. And I'm sure it was a proud day for Buck O'Neill to see his protege now move into Major League Baseball and have a chance to fashion what would ultimately become a Hall of Fame career there with the Cubs. And, and for him to be there, I'm sure, meant the world to a young Ernie Banks, you know, who was walking into a, a world that he really wasn't sure what to expect. And to have Buck there, I know, meant a great deal to him. Now, you know, the the thing, as you mentioned, is the isolationism. You know, they brought up Gene Baker, and that was kind of the practice with ML Bree is to bring up two Negro League players. So, you know, someone to kind of talk to and and be with. And, and, And so, you know, as Chicago being a very segregated city, they're on the south side, the rest of the team's on the north side. And those were kind of some tough years for Ernie because, you know, just the camaraderie, especially in the clubhouse, just wasn't there. No, no. And that was going to be a natural, again, byproduct of what happens with those early black players who came into major league baseball and more times than not, your teammates didn't want you to be there. They really did not want you to be there. It's not like you're being welcomed with open arms. And even by the time that Ernie gets there, there's still this hesitation of acceptance of these players. And so we created an exhibition last year 
in recognition and commemoration of the 75th anniversary of Jackie Robinson's breaking of baseball's color barrier. And the exhibition is called Barrier Breakers. And the Barrier Breaker exhibit Crawley chronicles all of the players who broke their respective major league teams color barriers. So from Jackie joining Brooklyn through Elijah Pumpsey Green being the last to complete the integration cycle, believe it or not folks, 12 years later, <clears throat> it took 12 years before every major league team had at least one black baseball player. Wow. Pumpsey Green would be the last to complete the integration cycle with the Red Sox in 1959. And the reason that we wanted to create this exhibit is because people by and large know Jackie's story. It's very courageous, pioneering story. Right. But the other integration pioneers, we don't really talk about. And that's how we are as a society. We always celebrate the first. We rarely ever celebrate the second. And if you're number 16, you can pretty well much forget it. No one ever talks about you. As you well know, Larry Doby would integrate the American League just literally weeks after Jackie breaks the color barrier in the National League. Doby integrates the American League with then the Cleveland Indians. Of course, now they're the Cleveland Guardians. And Larry right. Doby went through just as much, some may argue even more than Satchel Paige, I mean, than Jackie Robinson. But the other side of the equation is there were five guys who go up in 1947. So not just Jackie, but Larry Doby, Hank Thompson, Willard Brown, and Dan Bankhead would all go up in 1947. And a few folks now recognize Larry Doby's pioneering role. But the other guys are the answers to a trivia question. Right. And as I remind folks, it didn't get any easier for Elijah Pumsey Green in 1959 in Boston than it did for Jackie Robinson in 1947 when he joined the Brooklyn Dodgers. All of these guys, all of these integration pioneers had their trials and tribulations as they were trying to blaze a path to pursue their major league careers. You're walking into an environment where, again, your teammates not, don't really want you there because fear was governing this as well. Because every time one of those players came on to one of those major league teams, Crawley, they took somebody's job. They took a white player's job. And they took the job of someone who was a friend of that guy on that team. So naturally, there was some animosity that was associated with this kind of transitioning process. And it was only after these guys were able to demonstrate their great abilities that they start to gain more and more acceptance. And then the reality of having us all together starts to break down those misnomers and stereotypes that so often govern how we learn about one another. Typically, we learn about one another by based on what somebody said. Somebody said, well, you know, they like that. But then when we're in that locker room together, now you see me every single day. You see me every single day. And I see you every single day. And then all of a sudden, those things that you heard about me and those things that I heard about you, they don't even remotely apply. And that's what we saw with Jackie Robinson. 
you know, all those players and many of them were from the deep south who had this kind of implanted mindset about what black folks were like. And here comes Jackie and he's nothing like they thought he would be. And he's talented. And now we're winning. And I can tell you now, winning cures a lot of ills. <laughs> yeah, now it cures a lot of ills, but once they saw your ability start to manifest itself, that too helped chip, chip away at some of the stigma that was associated with it. But yeah, no, I mean, can you imagine? It's difficult to walk into an environment where you don't feel welcomed. Right. Yeah, you don't feel welcomed. And somehow or another, you have to will yourself to be able to perform and perform at a high level and Ernie was able to do that. Right. And 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 so, you know, the first couple of years, you know, he's up in Chicago, but then Buck does join the Cubs officially as a scout. And and that had to have been huge for, for Ernie to be reunited with his surrogate father. Oh, no question. Because again, now the comfort zone is growing greater because you got somebody that can relate to you and you can relate to him. And when things aren't going well, you do have a shoulder that you feel comfortable crying on. And, and, a, and an ear that was always willing to hear what you had to say and someone you trusted. So when Buck O'Neill gave you advice, you knew it was sound advice. He was telling you not what you wanted to, wanted to hear, but what you needed to hear uh -huh, so that he could help push you to become everything that you kind of wanted to become, but maybe had doubts about your ability that you could become that. And so that had to make a world of difference in terms of Ernie's just level of comfort to have someone that he had a relationship with that was an integral part now of the organization. Right. And, and, and with Ernie, right after Buck's there, it doesn't take too much longer after that that he wins the MVP in 58 and 59. Now, the one thing about Ernie, though, and, and, and you know, this is kind of a tricky part because, you know, there's part of him that kept to himself a lot. There's a part of him that kind of deflected. And now that I've read so many books and led, read so many interviews and I, I met Ernie met plenty of times and he would always ask me questions. I keep thinking about how different it would be, you know, if I was able to get him on a show like this. But the thing about Ernie is that that personality that he learned from Buck O'Neill, a lot of the first black players that kind of came through were more reserved and kind of yeah. very careful as they, you know, as they were probably, obviously there's all the pressure that you talked about. Ernie was, was really one of the first players to kind of really kind of show a more playful side of himself. Yeah. That, and that's Buck, right? Yeah. Yeah, because I think the other ball players who had transitioned into the major leagues before him, I don't know if they felt like they could be them their natural selves. You know, you had to kind of adhere and you had to play a certain way to gain acceptance. And so their personalities didn't seem to come out the way that Ernie, who felt a whole lot more comfortable eventually allowing his personality to come out in not only the way he played, but the way he ultimately related to the fan base there in Chicago. He is one of the early black players to actually be able to showcase that. You know, the other guys were very reserved, very workmanlike in their approach to the game. And, and I don't think that had they not been in that situation, that would have been the case. I think they would have seen, you would see much more of their personality. And then you get an Ernie Banks. 
and then eventually you get a you, you know you also get a Willie Mays, and so these guys got to show their personalities. Right. Yeah, where Jackie Robinson had to be so laser focused and so workmanlike, and he was trying to defy a stereotype in his in that process of proving that we were capable of playing this game at the major league level. So they could not do the exact same things. Now, Larry Doby was naturally a very quiet kind of guy. He wasn't that big personality. Now, Satchel was that big personality, but even Satchel had to subdue his personality when he gets to Cleveland in 1948. He can't be that big, big personality that he had been in the Negro League because it would have been so much frowned upon uh, there at the major league level, which again, major league baseball really missed not allowing these guys. And I won't say they didn't allow. I think the guys felt like they weren't allowed. Maybe they would have been. But, you know, Satchel's personality is one that a lot of those who watched him in the major league didn't get to see. Right. You know, and like they got to see in the Negro Leagues and that charisma and the energy that he brought like that. Now they saw the talent. They got to witness the talent of an old man. Yeah, whether he was 42 or 52, by the time he gets to the major leagues, we don't know. But he was still dealing when he got there to the major league. But he couldn't be himself. And, and I think a lot of the guys felt that way. Again, I don't know if that was forced on them by Major League Baseball or if they just felt like they had to acquiesce and, and act in a certain way so that they wouldn't ruffle any feathers along the way. Right. Now, Buck was named the first black coach in the major leagues by the Cubs in 1962. He was not assigned in-game co uh, base coaching duties, uh, nor was he included in the College of Coaches, which was a silly system that the Cubs had <laughs> back in the 60s. Um, but that had to have been a proud moment for Ernie at that moment to kind of see Buck you know, break that color barrier as far as coaching and managerial responsibilities? Oh, no question. No question. And, and I think all the black players who Buck had had some influence in bringing to the Cubs were excited about his promotion to a coach. And, and I think a lot of them were disappointed that he never got to get on the field. Yeah. And, and I do think had Buck gotten on the field, Buck would have likely have been the first black manager in this sport. Because Buck, as he would say himself, he knew the Cubs system from top to bottom. And, and he had brought so much of that talent along and groomed so much of that talent and worked with damn near everybody within the organization. So they knew his capability. And had he gotten on the field, I think it would have been difficult to take him off the field. And he talked about his inherent pride in being named the first African-American coach. Now, think about what you just said, though. 1962. That's 15 years after Jackie breaks the color barrier and we're just getting our first African-American coach. And as Buck would say, Crawley, I was proud of the accomplishment, but I wish I had been the 999th black coach in Major League, or 9,999th black coach in Major League Baseball as opposed to being the first. So yes, it meant a little bit more money, perhaps better living conditions, but as he would also go on to say, I can't stick out my chest being the first when I knew all of these other great black baseball minds who were more than capable of waving a guy home. 
Right. And yet he's that breakthrough moment as a coach. And so it goes to show that the field was integrated. But baseball's leadership realm is hierarchy. This was very slow to take place. 15 right. years before you get the first black coach. And then you don't get the first black manager until the 1970s with Frank Robinson. And then you don't get your first black general manager to years later with Bill Lucas. So all these great minds who were there in the Negro Leagues and Buck knew them well, who would have been great leaders at the major league level, they didn't get those opportunities. Yeah, no, the field guys got the opportunity, but not the guys, not the minds of black baseball. They really didn't get the opportunity. Right. And, you know, the the one thing that I always think about is how much you mentioned it earlier that Ernie never forgot his roots and what Buck O'Neill did for him for his career. And whether it was his Hall of Fame speech or or, or in so many interviews. And and honestly, uh, Bob, nothing makes me smile more than when I get to see old tape of those two talking with each other, because you can <laughs> you can you can feel the love between those two guys, the respect, the love, the relationship. And it, to me, it's important for Cub fans and, and, and for many reasons I love having you on, but to understand that without Buck, this everything that you know about Ernie Banks and Mr. Cubs, the player he became, the man he became doesn't happen without Buck O'Neill. No, it, it, it doesn't. And what a shame it would have been if we'd have missed out on a talent like Ernie Banks. Yeah. And that can be said for so many of the players who call the Negro Leagues home, who fans fell in love with them when they got to the major leagues. I oftentimes pose the question to my guest, can you imagine our sport without Ernie Banks, without Henry Aaron? without Willie Mays, without Roy Campanella, without Roberto Clemente and Bob Gibson. And if you can, Crawley, you can imagine what it was like before 1947. Because, man, they didn't learn how to play after 1947. They were playing great baseball well before 1947. So had the doors open sooner, we as baseball fans would have been privy to some of the greatest athletes to ever play this game. Yeah, and how much better would our game have been uh, if the doors had been opened sooner, just as it became after 1947, the game just simply got better with the admission of both black and brown players into the major leagues. And so now you are truly giving the very best athletes an opportunity to showcase their world-class baseball abilities. And who were the benefactors of that? We as fans. We got to see this. And, and to imagine uh, Major League Baseball without Ernie Banks is, is hard to even fathom. Right. He's so ingrained in Cub fan culture. It's something. Bob, where can people follow you and the museum on Twitter? Yes, you can follow me on Twitter at NLBMPrez, P-R-E-Z. The museum at NLB Museum KC on Twitter and the same on Instagram. Both of us, our usernames are the same on Instagram, NLBM Prez on Twitter and Instagram, and NLB Museum KC for the museum itself on Twitter and Instagram. And of course, you can follow us on the World Wide Web at NLBM.com. 
Right. And and don't forget to continue to follow the animated series, Undeniable right. Stories of the Negro Leagues. Uh, the, the, the most recent one just dropped, correct? Yes. Most recent one that looks at the international impact of the Negro Leagues. And folks have been fascinated to see the connection. Our sport is a global game. And surprisingly, y'all, it is a global game in large part to the impact of the Negro Leagues. Absolutely. So check that out. And don't forget to check out Bob's own podcast, Black Diamonds, wherever you stream podcasts. Bob, thank you for coming on again. We always appreciate talking with you. Anytime, Crawley. Thanks for having me, man. And and good luck to your Chiefs tomorrow. Uh, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Go Chiefs. <laughs> That's a wrap of Season 2, Episode 11, Buck O'Neill and Ernie Banks. Crowley, great job with Bob Kendricks. And uh, hope you uh, can find a way to enjoy Super Bowl Sunday. We're all pulling for the Chiefs on this side of the uh, Fly the W podcast. So hopefully when we get back together early next week, we can uh, – Cheers that uh, we were right and the Chiefs are the uh, world champs. Yeah, I'm going to be at Club 400 today. So as much as I don't care about the foosball, at least I got squares. I got some prop bets and I have plenty of beer. Uh, If any Cubs news breaks, and I doubt it's going to happen during the Super Bowl, you can follow us on the socials, Fly the W670 on Instagram and Twitter, Fly the W on Facebook, and you can email us at flythew670 at gmail.com. Go Chiefs and go Cubs.